Everything is backwards now. Like out there is the true world. And in here is the dream. Hello, Jacob. Hey, Joey. <laughs> how, are, how are things hey. in Incline Village, if I got it right? Uh, yeah, really good, mate. Really good. I couldn't be happier. Um, so what's going on lately there? Um, life's busy. Uh, I, the person I was, you know, nine months ago, a year ago, I wouldn't have believed that I could do it. But uh, there's just so much opportunity here and so many uh, chances for me to, to do things and to work towards what I'm trying to achieve. And I don't know, hard, hard to put it into a few words. Um, oh, go ahead. <laughs> what are you trying to achieve? Um, I, uh, that, um, uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> you, asked the, you asked the big question, okay? <laughs> I'm give you an answer, please. I know. Have you, have you seen that movie Avatar where, like, uh, the guy, the main guy is, like, uh, getting to know the, you know, the natives of the new world and moving further away from his, uh, you know, his military friends and such on the base. Yeah. There's this one quote that really stuck with me. He says, everything is backwards now. It's like all the reasons that he went there in the first place or got there in the first place have totally flipped because he's on the other side of all that now. And I kind of feel that way here, you know, like if you, you look back through some of the podcasts we've done before, I'm all about skating, and yet I'm looking at ways to incorporate some of what skiing has into skating. And now I'm looking at it entirely the opposite way. <laughs> <laughs> what? So, because I'm on that side now, you know, I didn't know anything about skiing then. I didn't, I hadn't done it at all. And yet now, you know, I'm doing it or I'm learning how to do it and learning about the community and learning about, uh, you know, or everything that comes along with, uh, you know, with living in a ski town and skiing, even though there's not a whole lot of snow here, there's enough. So, uh, what is your history with skiing, just to start off? Like uh, zip. <laughs> Nothing. Um, I've had a pair of, uh, I've had a pair of ski boards, like those short uh, skis that you use with non-release bindings. I've had a pair of them for maybe like eight years, ten years. And I would use them once or twice every winter if I was going to visit, you know, visit Frank in Colorado or uh, go somewhere where there was going to be snow. And it never really, you know, my abilities there never really evolved beyond just trying to rollerblade on snow. And that's, you know, basically what you're doing on those really short, fat boards that don't have a whole lot of edge, don't have a whole lot of flex, and don't have a whole lot of stability when you start trying to go as fast as what skiers are going yeah um so up until living here up until living here none no 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 background or experience with skiing at all and how much better uh does it feel than than those now that you've that you you've tried different skis and you know a little bit more about skiing and you're starting to do it more well it was weird because I thought that the technique was going to be very, very different. And that was part of the reason why I hadn't got onto skis uh, up until now. Was if you're only if you're only going out once or twice a season and you're a rollerblader, 
it was my attitude like, oh, don't learn how to ski because you're going to fall down a whole bunch of times trying to learn this new technique. But I guess there's been a lot of advances and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, technology that's gone into the shaping of skis in the last 10 years, 15 years. And, um, yeah, it feels incredible. It, it, there was practically no difference at all to the technique and the performance of, you know, full-length, side-cut, rockered skis is, you know, it's amazing. I, the first time that I put a pair of skis on, they were just like a pair of like rental demo skis at the local mountain. First time I put a pair on, uh, it was the last time that I'd been on the ski boards there. Then I got on back on. <laughs> so what was it about? Do you want to buy a pair? Because it, it, I mean, it's over. No, thank you. <laughs> There's no comparison to what the skis are capable of these days in riding, you know, a 100 or a 130 is that kind of the magic number of uh or sorry never mind what what's the magic number lengthwise for maybe like a rollerblader who wants to try a pair of skis um well as far as the ski boards are concerned um they were all around 100 you know like 89 and 98 i think there was actually a rule they had in competition for a while saying that they they had to be a maximum of 100 so that was a limiting factor, I guess. What a One fun! I've had for the last maybe three years uh, are 130, and they're a lot fatter, and they work better, but they don't really compare to what a ski does. Um, I mean, I would I would suggest probably around the same as your height is a good starting point. You might be tripping over tips and tails a lot if you've come straight from rollerblading because you're kind of forced to keep your feet a lot more parallel, you know, John Elliott style when you're, when you're skiing compared to rollerblading. Yeah. But about, about your height, maybe a little shorter if you really wanted to stick with the slow stuff and, and the technical stuff like the rail grinds and the, the tail presses and, and that, that kind of stuff. Well, uh, okay, so what was it about ski technology that made it so different from ski boards? I mean, the length is different, but in terms of the feel of the actual ski, what has uh, changed? That's that's kind of a tricky one to answer. You heard that, that interview with Jason Leventhal, right? Yeah, I loved it. I love everything that that guy's attached to interview-wise. I, I really related in a big way to what he was talking about as far as the culture and the resistance that he came up against in the mid-90s trying to do what he was doing. And it kind of clicked in his head that it wasn't going to work if he was trying to change a ski because the industry itself was just so resistant to change. He had to practically go to the other end of the spectrum. You know, he was, he was snowboarding a little and he was skiing a little and he wanted to see some of the the innovations and some of the changes that had come through snowboards on skis couldn't make that happen. So what he decided to do was, well, forget about me trying to change skis. Let me try and change a snowboard as little as possible to make it like a ski. And the way for him to do that was just to basically make these little snowboards with forward stance on them where he put one on each foot and faced forward. 
and that's how the, the ski boards, you know, were, were conceived. And even the name of them was, in a way, trying to remove them from them being skis. I mean, I know, I know it's easy for him now to say it's all skiing, they're all skis, we're all skiers, but at the time he was saying that same thing and it wasn't working. They weren't, they weren't buying it. So he goes other end of the spectrum and makes these really short, really fat, really radically side cut mini snowboards and puts one of them on each foot and puts a non-release binding on them and there you go. And it's most of what he had conceived then and was working on then that's trickled down into uh, ski technology. Rocker is kind of a different thing. You know, we've spoken about Shane McConkie a lot, so I'm sure you're already on, on uh, up to speed with, with where that came from. Yeah. <laughs> but what's... It, it oh, go ahead. Just the handling, and it changes the performance of the skis like, like nothing. I mean, if skiers today put on a typical ski from like 92 or 93, they might as well be riding a pair of two-by-fours down the hill. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's that archaic compared to what they've got now. Um, so is there parallels to rollerblading technology? Like, like could I – is someone going to take uh, a pair of shadows and some wood glue – because I've thought of this before, and take two skateboards and face them forwards, <laughs> and try like, is that? Have you thought of that? It would it would, it would be pretty hilarious, wouldn't it? I uh, well, yeah. They had grind planks made out of wood, right? Yeah. And <laughs> and those Senate aluminum grind plates, you know, they were trying to get as close as they could to like truck hanger material for grinding. Which I enjoyed, and which Josh Petty used in his famous uh, VG7 section. But that's a side note. Even the first anti-rocker wheels, they were literally skateboard wheels that were cut down to the right width to fit into the frame channel. So, uh, honestly, I think if it was going to happen, it probably would have happened in the time of like Arlo and Brooke and Senate because they were the ones that were seeing that connection between rollerblading and skateboarding the same way that Jason Leventhal was seeing a connection between the technology that's, that snowboarders had and trying to bring that to skiing. So what was the point where Jason Leventhal decided to make a ski, like a, like a longer ski, and just ditch the ski boarding thing? I can't remember like what the turning point was. Gee, that's a really hard question to answer because um, when you try and read about the history of you know, quote-unquote free skiing now. It's been revised and revised a whole bunch of times to try and gloss over some of the things that they're not too proud of, uh, which is basically skiboarding. They're not very proud of that era and the fact that twin tips and a certain style of skiing that skiboarding allowed came out of these, you know, goon-looking guys with no poles and, you know, flailing arms and legs, throwing themselves off jumps and doing crazy stuff. But, you know, the way that skiing became, even by the end of the 90s, they were kind of looking back on that as an embarrassment more than anything. Um, I don't know if Line actually had full-length twin-tube skis before Solomon, 
But you've got to look at the kind of money and the kind of um, force that Solomon can put behind something like that compared to the kind of money and the kind of uh, ability that Jason Leventhal had at the time. You know, it would yeah. have been, it would have been, it's very easy for me to believe that Jason was working on those and had all sorts of, you know, prototypes and stuff in vision long before Solomon had even, you know, spoken to anyone about getting it done. But, um, you know, the, what are they called? The new Canadian Air Force? Yeah, the guys, that, the guys that came out of BC and pitched the idea to Solomon and were just blasting on those skis from day one, that's kind of credited as the beginning. And they, it, well, at least in the story video about those skis, they got turned down by a bunch of companies, I think. Yeah. And it's funny, uh, JP has since said that, you know, Solomon isn't the company now that it was then in trying to pitch a similar idea and go, you know, work in conjunction with them in the same way it just wouldn't be possible today the way that it was then. So that's interesting. Solomon were in a position, Solomon were in a position where they were losing market share and it was very attractive to them to find something new and to find the next wave, you know. So that was why they were able to be talked into that idea. But nowadays, probably not so much. Um, what did you think about... Jason Leventhal saying um, if he could do it again, that he would outsource his manufacturing. I think, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but do you remember that when he was talking about that? Um, yeah, and it's it's something, it's basically what he's doing now with this new company. Um, for, for people who just need a really quick catch up on the history, Jason started Line. Line got not so much bought out, but at least invested in by a smaller company. That company got bought by K2, and in the process, I think Line got bought out by K2. Jason worked with K2 for Line, or whichever way you want to look at that. But it was maybe six months ago that he left, and he started his own company where he's basically doing that. He's taking care of the design, but he's basically outsourcing the production of the skis, and he's outsourcing this and that and the rest. But he has this great new business model that he's using, I love what he's doing. It's basically what I wanted to be able to do with Metric way back, was focus on very small runs, give the customers and give the, the skaters or the skiers themselves a lot of input into what was being designed, what was being made, make them feel like they were a part of it, and um, yeah, get it done on a, on a smaller scale than the bigger companies so you weren't really competition to them you were just a niche doing your own thing and the big guys didn't like Solomon and K2 didn't really see you as a threat, you know? And, um, I think that he's really far ahead and you were even further ahead on that. Um, that there should be more companies like that. Well, the one thing that he's done that the skiing industry, and I guess in many ways, the role dating industry have really shied away from is, selling directly to the consumers. Um, the industry loves the idea of middlemen, you know, distributors and retailers and markups. And I'm not saying that there's no virtue in that model. There is a huge amount of good that comes from people having a local shop, having a local tech guy at that shop who knows the hardware and the, the culture inside and out. 
having them put on contests, promote local skaters, etc., etc., etc. There's a huge amount of virtue there. But it, I don't think that the hardware progresses in the way that it can, and I don't feel like the community feels invested in the progression of the hardware. Um, and that's probably been one of my biggest gripes with Kaiser, for example, is that it's very obvious that Kaiser is not listening to what skaters really want. And what they're making is way off base and way out in left field compared to what skaters really want. And when you have a chorus of, you know, 50 or 100 skaters all saying the same thing, it shouldn't be that hard for a company to pick up on it and give those people what they want. And that's exactly what Jason Leventhal is doing. He's, he's found that niche market, that core market, who are, you know, innovating what's possible on a pair of skis, and he's listening to them, and he's making the skis accordingly, and they're the ones that are going to go out and do the next big trip and create the next big style. So um, it certainly has, you know, a lot of potential there, and I don't think that it's going to be a threat or be competition to a company like Solomon or K2 who's just going to do what they've always done. I think uh, in rollerblading, Adapt and possibly Caltic, uh, although they they haven't changed their product, but it was something that skaters wanted. Um, But Adapt is doing a really good job that they've already changed their skate uh, a few times over. I couldn't be happier watching some of what the, the, the newer, smaller companies in skating are doing. Um, Celtic frames, from day one, I was a huge fan. I was able to shoehorn a set of 62s into those frames. No rubbing, no filing or dremeling. Magic. Loved them. Loved them. Yeah, I just ordered another pair, actually, because um, nice. I, I remembered how good they were. Uh, length and lightness... Um, I don't know. I really enjoyed them, so I I don't know. I do think there's a few. Uh, I didn't want to do any naysaying in this podcast, but uh, I do think there's a few faults or problems with rollerblading as a whole that are going to keep something like the Celtic frame from being as big of a success as it should be. Yeah. What What would that be? Uh, hey, well, without getting too into it, but I, I think is that for me, it's the fact that Caltic could be like a standard frame on like a large company could buy a large amount of them, and then Caltics could come stock. That's okay. if they could work out an OEM deal with a boot manufacturer, that would be amazing, amazing. Um, but they won't unfortunately, because the boot manufacturers, they all have their own frame brand. But who skates? I mean, apart from the Volo frame, I don't think a lot of people skate the stock frame. (laughs) But it, it doesn't matter because those companies are still shooting themselves in the foot to do that. I think that I think that 5050 did a great job back in the day of trying to move rollerblade hardware towards the idea of building a complete from different manufacturers. Yeah. The boot, you choose the frame, you choose the wheels, you get the complete built. They all work together because of the standards. 
but they all come from different places and you have the ability to do that. Yeah. The first U USD stuff. Um, and, uh, Oh, go ahead. Well, let's go back before USD. Okay. They were trying to do that a long time before UFS actually happened. You know, I remember seeing Tom Fry had a pair of fifth elements that he had Jimmy rigged a 50, 50 frame kit onto. Really? Is there any old daily bread evidence of this? Cause I never even realized that. Uh, Probably not, but I saw them, right? Yeah. But what I'm saying is it was – when I say Jimmy Rig, I mean you basically need like a, a whole handful of tools and a workbench to do it because Rossi's had gone a really long way with the design of the fifth element to trying to make sure no one else's frames fit on their boot. Yeah, that sounds like K2 as well. Even though the first Solomons were flat sole, they went a long way to trying to make sure that no one else's frames fit on their boot. Right? That was a popular thing at the time. Those companies, they didn't want to see the market fragmented. They wanted to keep selling not only a complete that they had made every part of, but they didn't want people to be able to go and buy replacement parts from other manufacturers. They wanted the whole skate. They wanted to sell the whole thing. And that's why you saw all these brand names come out from existing companies where they were trying to make it look like you were buying a skate where those OEM deals had been done with these other companies. You know what I mean? What? Space wheels, black hole wheels, humor truck bearings, killer bee bearings. All this stuff was coming out of the same companies. But they would brand it in a whole bunch of different ways to make it look like, oh, you're getting a custom skate. Don't get uh, a custom skate. They don't want you to have a custom skate. Yeah. So back to Caltic, I unfortunately don't think that they're going to succeed because who are they going to do an OEM deal with? They can't do it with USD because of Kaiser. They can't do it with uh, Valo because of either the stock Valo frames or maybe even those, what are they called? Youth Co. Uh, airline frames or yeah. whatever. Yeah. They can't do it with Rollerblade because of uh, Blank. Uh, they can't do it with Razors because of ground control. They can't do it with any bootman. Even Adapt's going to start making their own frames. And that could be awesome too, but that's kind of what I'm saying. Like They're not going to go beyond selling frames to individual consumers. And really hard to sell a flat specific frame to all of Rollerblade. Right? Because only like what two or three percent of skaters really want it. Yep. You know, yeah. think they want it, but they're not going to really like it when they get on it, and then they're going to try and set it up any rocker, and it's not going to work because it was designed to work flat. And if they're really lucky, they're going to break it in half because they're skating at any rocker, and it was designed to skate flat. And you know, Tom Heiser kind of had to deal with that whole thing with physics. You can't, you can't make the rollerblading community. Flat Nazis, they're they're sold on any rocker. The whole the whole community, the whole culture is sold on any rocker. Yeah, but you know, Caltech's not going to change that, unfortunately, because the frame's good enough to change it. But yeah, it really is. Um, I don't think they're going to succeed, and I keep saying unfortunately because I would love to see them succeed. It's just it's the naysayer in me and my experiences in rollerblading over the last. <laughs> I am very happy to see uh, Rob G is in the Celtic frames right now. Nice. Uh, and uh, he's loving them. And he's also in the Intuition Liners right now. Um, 
which is awesome. So, I mean, this is wishful thinking, but if he loves those things, you know. There is more diver- I'm seeing more diversity in rollerblading right now than I've seen in a very, very long time. Yeah, there was just a downhill competition at Kona Skate Park. I think you guys are a big driving force in it, but it's more than that. You're encouraging people to see that they've always wanted to do this and that this has always been part of them and part of what they love about rollerblading. And they're more willing to embrace that now than they have been for a long time. So, very exciting. It is very exciting. I don't think uh, it could just be that the average age is going up too, and people are just more open. I've thought of that one. Did you in the Kevin Dowling podcast with the uh, organizer of Pow Wow? They they didn't have an under eighteen division for Pow Wow because not a single person signed up. <laughs> like if you want some interesting statistics there's one right there <laughs> there's one of the larger events you know in the states not a single person they, under 18 signing up there probably could have been a bunch that wanted to skate but if they were outnumbered by like 20 somethings they just would have felt like it wasn't appropriate or something i don't know yeah yeah but i could see that is the vibe that i get from powwow is such of an inclusive thing but even if they don't compete, I'm sure they're going to session and have the time of their lives anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The last, the last one looked really good. I, I do what? feel like um, Ona was genius. That park, it just, it just brings out the man in every skater. You know what I mean? Have you been there? I have not. I want to go there so bad. But you see the video and you're like, wow, man! Everyone's stepping up. Like everyone is leveling up at this contest. Well, because there's has to be. I mean, whether you believe in weird things or not, there has to be something about it being the oldest skate park in North America yeah. uh, that there has to be some kind of feeling when you go to that place that yeah. and the design of the park that you just have to give into it. But anyway, yeah, I agree with you on the diversity thing. And one thing I really like about that park is it's got this real kind of free form like motocross kind of vibe to it where if you were the kind of rollerblader who had focused your style and focused your tricks around skateboarding style and skateboarding tricks, it just doesn't convert there very well. No. You know what I mean? Like it forces you to be old school. It forces you to go faster than you want to go and to have to jump further than you want to go. And then it opens up all these new doors when I saw the video of last year's contest, uh, I hope I'm saying his name right, Chris Morocco. Oh, yeah, the 720. Killing it. <laughs> Dude, that seven was insane. <laughs> to see something like that and have not, having not seen something like that in a while, it really blew me away. I'm like, this guy is dropping in. He's pumping you know, this snake around and these trannies for all they're worth. He wasn't getting terribly high off the ground, but he was hitting it at like 30 or 40 mile an hour. Yeah. So, amazing. And did you ever remember there's a amazing Carlos trick that he, for one of the monsters of roll or something, he mute backflipped that same gap? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's just, it's the same kind of thing that you're talking about where that's, that trick now, the idea of someone doing that is so far outside of what rollerblading is and, and although it is more diverse it's, it, you just don't see a mute backflip over a massive 
15 foot gap or whatever it is. Carlos had the most amazing style because he, he could do all the technical stuff. He could do like just crazy, crazy disaster, rail, variations, stuff you wouldn't believe. But then it was like this this style he had that would come out sometimes at the ASAs and sometimes on street that you could tell was developed in God knows what situations he would find himself skating in in Brazil, you know, where you would just get a rig all sorts of stuff or hit the craziest, uh, you know, transfer or launch because it's all you had. And I can relate to that a little bit. I mean, Brisbane was a Brisbane's a decent sized city. You know, there's more than enough standard rails and standard gaps to hit. But you can get out in the middle of nowhere and find some like really shady looking stuff as well. And you're just trying to make it work, you know? Yeah. I, I loved seeing that was, you know, you would see this style that he would skate with that was kind of, you know, San Diego approved. But then at times you would see another style come out of him that was just totally breaking all the rules. And yet he was that hardcore and he was that badass that, he would he would pull it off. He would make it work. Yeah, we were lucky to have Carlos. Uh, I'm not sure if he still skates or not. There is something to be said about those shitty parks with sketchy transitions and things. It, it makes you a better skater in ways that you don't really appreciate at the time, you know. But if like if you have to grow up skating the rough stuff and then you get to a place like Woodward or an ASA course, oh man, <laughs> it's amazing. They do the tricks for you. Somewhat, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it makes it makes what was impossible before possible now. Yeah. You can just get so juiced off that off that uh, situation, you know. Um, thinking about that, how you were talking about Carlos being able to do the technical stuff, that edit that you sent to me of Phil, is it Casabon? Yeah. Um. It was a really good reminder of how far simplicity goes from like me as a spectator of skiing that doesn't know, like I, I do ski once in a while, once every couple of years, a few years, and I want to get back into it. But the simplicity that was on display in that, but plus innovation made me think about, you know, some things that were missing from rollerblading more recently that yeah. people were better at a while ago, you know? That's one of the things I love about watching him ski is that, um, you know, I mean, free skiing is pretty popular right now. There are a lot of rippers. There are a lot of up-and-comers that are hungry and that are really taking it to the next level. I guess the same way rollerblading was in the late 90s where it's very focused about, you know, the spins and the grinds and you being able to add, you know, add an extra spin or add an extra variation or whatever. But he's looking at it in a totally different way, and it's kind of reminiscent of what um, of what Daston Latimer started doing on Shadows, was looking at the hardware you've got and thinking, how can I how can I use this to do something that hasn't been done before, or how can I use this to do something in a different way than other people are doing it? And you watch him ski, and he's just he's way more aware of what the tips and tails are able to do in certain situations you see him doing all sorts of stuff that you know you're probably not going to see in one of like a in one of the slope style contests or in the olympics or anything like that 
although those guys were going huge and spinning around nine times and whatever, they weren't really using the skis in the ways that he's using the skis. And when you watch it and it's, you know, the clips are explaining to you exactly what he's doing and how it is that he's doing it, it's, it's incredible. And what technology, is that that elf shoe tech that he's using? Um, a little bit, yeah. Um, I think a lot of what he does depends more on the flex of the skis, like how much, how much the tips and tails are going to flex in certain situations. But, um, but yeah, they do shape the ski in a certain way that when you're, when you're up on the tips or the tails, you're less likely to catch edges especially when you know you're spinning or you're you're switching from forwards to backwards and stuff like that you know a lot of these tricks like that like that one clip i sent you a lot of these clips you know guys are flying 30 feet through the air and coming down sideways on the tails and balancing like you know 30 feet down the landing <laughs> I, it doesn't even make any sense some of this stuff that i've yeah. seen it, it's like like grinding a rail on a pair of stilts. <laughs> like <laughs> the that thing that you sh- that you posted, or I don't know if you sent it to me or you posted it up, where a dude did a butter going like one direction and and ended up like stopping his rotation and spinning the opposite way. Yeah, that's that's next level, man. Like this is what this is what's going on in, in skiing right now is that you've got a bunch of really young kids who are spending a lot of time on their skis and, you know, they may not have like 100-foot jumps at their mountain. They may not be able to do like, you know, triple 1900 spins, but they're finding new ways of doing tricks. They're finding like, what can these skis let us do? And I'm not saying that this the video guy I sent you was the first to do it, but it blew a lot of people's minds the same way like, opening up that daily bread back in the day and seeing John Julio doing a unity grind blew a lot of people's minds. You know, this is something that, that people hadn't really thought was possible up until this guy does it. And we're all going to spend the next, you know, week or two at the park trying to learn how to do this. So, And that's what you say it was about. It was the ski tech that kind of, like it was a mix of the ski technology getting better and free skiing uh, kind of like on an upward uh, trajectory. It was definitely the flex in the skis because skis these days, especially for the younger guys, are way flexier than they've ever been. Really, really rubbery. So you can get up on those tips and tails without needing a whole lot of height and a whole lot of weight and a whole lot of force. Um, you know, for the shorter skis and for the younger guys. So instead of them having to ride around what's basically the same ski as an adult that's just cut down shorter, they're riding skis that are specifically made for them. Now, if a, you know, if a full-grown man like you or me got on one of them, we'd probably bend them in half like a rubber band. You know, they'd just boing and snap or something. Yeah. But for them, it works perfect. And as they work up, they can get onto the bigger skis. You know, don't get me wrong, they make these skis for full-grown men. But it's the kids who've got the time to get out there and, and practice this stuff and do this. Yeah. Uh, the older guys, the guys that kind of spent the last 10 or 15 years putting free skiing on the map, they're probably not going to go out and learn that trick, you know, because they're, they're now old school compared to those guys. Oh, that's so weird to kids think about. Doing, like, switch butter pretzels and you're like, wait, 
how is that even possible? <laughs> That's how is that even possible? But it is because you just saw the clip. You just saw the guy do it. And then so when when that kid that did that gets older, he becomes ultimately legit if he does that in the backcountry off of a cliff in powder. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> they, there is a tendency for the ski, the ski community to want to kind of glorify the backcountry skiing and the, and the powder skiing. Um, I imagine there's a certain rhythm and a certain flow to it that is a lot like surfing big waves, you know, where, yep. you know, it's kind of, it's kind of life or death and you need to be, you know, you need to be on that edge. You need to be in that zone where you're just completely focused on what you're doing. So I get it without having actually been out there and done that stuff. But those guys are still old school. I mean, you can't fight against the youth. You know what I mean? They can't change the fact that this guy in the park, and he's probably like, He's probably from the Midwest somewhere where they don't even have backcountry. They don't even have powder, right? Probably from the Midwest somewhere where there's some tiny little park and all you can do is throw rail boxes and, uh, and you know, small jumps in there and stuff. And he's probably young enough that he might not even want to hit the jump if it's like 30 or 40 feet. He just might want to be practicing tricks over the knuckle and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. But these are the guys who are who have like, you know, five, six, seven days a week to fit in a few hours skiing. The older guys, unless they're, you know, pro or unless they're part of the industry, they can't do that. So those, the, the old guard, it can't fight against the younger guys. The younger guys are the ones who are going to make skiing what it will be for the next, who knows how long, you know, seven years, 10 years. What What is it about, uh, rollerblading in its current state that is missing that sense of uh, of experimentation not experimentation so much as just how you talked about Dustin Latimer just putting a board at the bottom of the stairs and saying you know what I'm just going to gap this set and, and jump into this board uh, what is it about skiing that it's you watch these things and, and think I, I wish rollerblading had a little bit more of this why is it that rollerblading doesn't have as much of that well i'll try and answer that question but i want to try and stay away from being negative in this podcast okay yeah no problem you can similar to what we said before about the the blading cup and me saying that it was it kind of had this feel of it being the old guard coming back out for a victory lap and that if i was a young rollerblader today, you know, like a 16, 17-year-old kid who'd been doing it for two or three years, but I would have been really pissed at the way that it was covered. Right? Yeah. Then focusing on like, oh, you know, let's, uh, uh, you know, here's Arlo commentating, let's take a look at the history of rollerblading, and then we're going to have guys do tricks on a spine ramp for, you know, a couple of hours. It, it felt really old school. And I think rollerblading is fighting against the youth, you know? I mean, when I got into it, it might seem really laughable now, but when I got into rollerblading, the, you know, the new school, the people that were really like pushing it and innovating it were people like Chris Edwards, Angie Walton, Jess Derenforth, uh, Mark Shays, Pat Parnell, Chris Mitchell, you know, really, really old school guys. And I think the majority of rollerbladers probably don't realize that 
a guy like Mark Shays or Pat Parnell ever really skated. They never really lined up at a rail and made themselves do do grinds and do variations on it. Yeah. Learned, learned how to do that. They were really, really quickly replaced partly by Arlo, but more so by all of the Senate kids. Yeah. Dudes like Roadhouse and Champion, they were hella young when they got sponsored, like as literally the dudes that are going to be pro and going to be the driving force of Senate. So there was a huge changing of the guard there where, I mean, the moment you saw Roadhouse's section in VG3, you know, a dude like Pat Parnell or a dude like Mark Shays kind of realized that their their career on the skates was over. Yeah. So they were going to need to be the commentator or need to be the presenter or need to be something like that. Well, I mean, look at the way rollerblading is now, you know? Like, there was a time when Broscow was really, really young. There was a time when Farmer was really, really young. Happy as well, right? Yeah. There hasn't been a changing of the guard since like the late nineties. There's like there's little hints of it, but since there's not really any structures yeah. to to bring them up. Um the, the closest thing has probably been like uh the honey baked crew and the yeah. Haitian guys and stuff. That's probably been the closest thing to like a revolution, like a new school changing of the guard in rollerblading. In the um, and yet they didn't try and replace the old guard. They tried to incorporate them, which, you know, that, that's probably a good thing, but it kept them from replacing the Haffies and the Broskows and the Farmers. It didn't make those guys look old school. Yeah. But, you know... It, that's a weird mix, actually. kind of is old school. Like, the way Broskow is skating now... He gets a pass. He's allowed to do that because of all the things that he did in the, you know, in the KFC days. Absolutely. The way that he skated then, it. I'm trying to think of the right word. The way that Broskow skated then, it. Uh, it allows him to skate the way he does now, and it's okay. It's acceptable. Yeah, absolutely. But there's a bunch of really young kids who are emulating the way Broskow skates now, and yet they never did the things he did. And I think that's kind of sad that they're not going to have that same power and that same speed and that same you know, amplitude and, and kind of force and energy behind their skating that he had back then. But he doesn't need to keep skating like that because if he had to keep skating like that, he would have been dead for about six years now. <laughs> A lot but of... You, you can only... You can only skate that way and and you know sooner or later your number comes up so yeah and we all we've all seen the footage as awesome as he is we've seen the footage of him take some epic falls that you know would end anyone else's career and yet he's still got a career yeah it's in pass because of the old kfc sections you know um but i agree with you that there there hasn't been a changing of the guard as far as someone who can skate on Haffy's level, on Broskow's level, and step it up. You know, there's maybe a couple of Europeans. You could maybe count CJ in there. Um, but there hasn't really been a changing of the guard. Seriously, what Seba's doing now is about as close as we've come. Powerblading tried and failed pretty miserably, but what Seba's doing now is, uh, is you know, it's changing things. Um... It, what was it? 
in Kevin Dowling's one is of his. Right? Is it Seba or is it Seba? What do you say? Well, because it's uh, it's Sebastian. Uh, so it's Seba. I think it's Seba, but I could be wrong. Because the it's based off of his name Sebastian. As you, you never hear people in rollerblading talk. Right? <laughs> you, watch all, you watch all these edits, you watch all this stuff, and you never hear people talk. Stand <laughs> up and say, "Hi, my name's Sebastian, and let me tell you a little bit about my skate company called Seva." <laughs> and yet, I've seen like dozens of edits. So. Um. Leon got to hang out with him uh, one night when he was over for Winter Clash, and I guess he was in France or Paris or at a slalom contest or something, and got to hang out with Sebastian for a bit, and and was just like he needs to do the podcast. But it's the same thing where it's um you know with no editing, it's hard for someone who represents a company to come on. But Leon says he is like just someone who really really loves skating and grew up with it and was like oh you you need you guys need to meet him so i loved hearing that uh, as someone who uh i guess i think he was really well known for freestyle like uh like slalom skating was like a big name and like I, when 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 Seba was first on the map you know making like slalom skates and fr skates and stuff i remember reading that that that's where he had come from and it's pretty obvious in the edits that you see not only of like the you know the aggressive team so to speak but the whole team it's pretty obvious that his concept of what freestyle skating is or can be is a lot broader and a lot more diverse than just aggressive and that's the part that excites me the most what was that guy's name um there was like a an edit of an Asian guy. Oh, Freezy. There you go. That guy. <laughs> yeah. It was an edit of an Asian guy who had obviously stepped up out of slalom into trying to bring it more to the streets. Yeah. It was amazing. It, it reminded me a lot of that that uh, idea of Rodney Mullen coming off freestyle skateboards and taking his tricks to the street in the early 90s when he first got on like... Um, what would it have been? Plan B, maybe? That's a really good point. You, it, That's actually what's happening with rollerblading right now, when you think about it. it it's, it's certainly the way that, that Seba appear to be approaching it, is we need to take all of these genres, all of these disciplines, and have people practice them all. And yeah. It was, I mean, it was a, a huge turning point in, in skateboarding because although everyone knew Rodney Mullen and had huge respect for his talent, you know, when you're doing it on a flat parking lot in Nisoc, in, in Nisox, on a little, you know, toothpick of a skateboard, it just didn't really, it didn't fit with that whole, you know, Dogtown attitude of skateboarding and even what Powell had been doing for like 10 years you know, with the whale tails and the bones brigade and stuff, it just didn't really fit. And it took some guys with vision to be like, "Hey, we can, we can combine these two things and take street skating to to the next level." You know, and Rodney Mullen was the guy to do it, but someone else probably put the idea in his head. Yeah, there's a uh, that really interesting thing in the bones brigade documentary where he almost had to be convinced 
to go street skating. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't really like. And I could see the same of slalom skaters. You know, he, he's obviously a very headstrong dude. I mean, you don't you don't just kind of walk up to Rodney Mullen and be like, "Hey, why don't you try this?" Like, he's obviously got a very good idea of who he is and what he's going to try and what he's not. So, yeah. Did you watch? Yeah, it would have taken some uh, subtle persuasion, I assume. <laughs> Did you watch that recent video of it was like a black and white video, like fourteen minutes of him just talking about skateboarding? I started, but I didn't make it through the fourteen minutes. Um, there's some really interesting stuff. He's just one of those like his mind's just on a different level, and skateboarding's lucky that that someone who could have been a professional like mathematician or something, yeah, got into skateboarding. The awesome thing about hearing him talk is. He obviously couldn't have been like the face of skateboarding, like the spokesman for skateboarding. You know, he couldn't have stood up like Tony Hawk or Sean White and like sold skateboarding to the masses. But when you hear him talk, you realize the kind of mental depth or the kind of uh, the kind of focus and concentration that it takes to skateboard at that level. And even people who will never set foot on a skateboard can listen to Rodney Mullen talk and be like, wow, I never realized that you guys were so invested in this. You know, we thought you were just a bunch of like stoners and slackers like Bill and Ted. We never realized that you basically have a degree in skateboarding. And that's why it's that's the way you think about it. That's the way you've approached it your whole life. And it's incredible that, I mean, he's, he speaks at TED and he speaks at these, like, intellectual conferences now because of what you just said. Yeah. Um, yeah he's got that, that personality. That's who he is inside. And he was really adamant, actually. And I think this is where I feel like rollerblading is at this point where uh, we just need people to be themselves on their skates well, and not be locked into anything. Um, and good stuff will happen. I'll, I'll, I'll try and say something that might be a bit of a tangent here, but I think it's going to work in well. This is one thing that I have realized very, very strongly since getting into skiing and being a part of not only the skiing community, but, you know, rubbing shoulders with the snowboarding community as well. Um, it's... I've, for a long time, I have said that I think if rollerblading is going to move forward, it needs to turn away from following skateboarding so intently. Um, when, you, when you watch what's going on on the mountain, on the snow, there's the snowboarders who you would think would be very, very closely related to skateboarding and have their, their focus very intently on what skateboarding is doing. And then there's the skiers who you would think, you know, are not really getting it and that are kind of lame by comparison. What I have found today is pretty much the opposite of that. I think that the free skiers have a much more intent focus on what skateboarding is doing and that the snowboarders really don't. In, in, in attitude or in, in ethos, the snowboarders are further away from skateboarding than what the free skiers are. And... I would say rollerbladers are probably on par with the skiers, maybe even a little closer to skateboarding than what the snowboarders are. And it made me look into the history of it a little bit. You know, Jake Burton is the guy who pretty much put what a snowboard is on the map. And he was inspired by 
a piece of hardware called a snurfer. Well, snurfers were actually developed to be more along the lines of, I guess, like a, like a surfboard on snow. When you first look at them, they're probably closer to a sled than anything else, but it's a sled that you're supposed to stand up on side stands. And, um, and that was all inspired by surfing. And the more you look at snowboarding, the way that it's moved out into the backcountry, the way that it's moved into people really creating their own terrain and trying to find the most unique and the most original natural terrain to go and ride, they're, they've got the same attitude as the surfers. They don't have the same attitude as the skateboarders. It's only right down the bottom of the hill in the park that you find that skateboarding attitude in snowboarding and no one cares about those guys anyway because they're all douches. <laughs> but um, but the, the skiing is, is, you know, the skiing's got a real hard on for skateboarding in a lot the same way that we have for a long time. And I think I've worked out why. <laughs> I want to hear it. Okay. Um I was, I was kind of theorizing about where all of these quote-unquote action sports or activities originated from since I realized that snowboarding really came more from surfing than it did from skateboarding. And people always say, you know, that, that skateboarding came from surfing. Well, kind of. I mean, skateboards were envisioned as a way to surf on pavement for some people, but the way they first originated was from scooters in the... In the 50s, there were these scooters that were basically made out of like a milk crate and you know a couple of two by fours, and then you would bolt then you would bolt roller skate trucks onto the bottom of the two by fours, which they reference in Back to the Future. There you go, right? Yeah. So all this talk about like oh you know rollerblading comes from roller skating. Well, no, it doesn't. It comes from ice skating. That was the whole point of a rollerblade was for you to be able to ice skate in summer. And now we've got skateboards that, although they were used to surf away from, away from the beach, away from the ocean, they re- the hardware itself really came from scooters. And those scooters wouldn't have been possible if it hadn't been for roller skates. And there's this, there's this very tangled web of what came from where. And yet, if you talk to young people today about where all of this came from, they're utterly convinced that everything came from skateboards. They're utterly convinced that like the skateboard was the progenitor of, of all of this stuff that everyone's doing. So as far as the hardware is concerned, it's really not. But as far as the culture is concerned, it really is. Yeah. It really is. Everyone is everyone is enamored with skateboard culture and all of these different action sports are trying to incorporate quote unquote skateboard culture into what they do. Well, when you look at the history of skateboarding culture, it has a lot to do with people's lifestyles at the time and not a whole lot to do with the board except for the board giving them certain abilities or certain possibilities. Um, rock music is a huge part of skateboarding. Right? Um, graffiti, huge part of skateboarding. All of these things came out of a certain time at the same time and it was common for people to be into all of those things at that time. You know, you could be like a, a punk street kid who had a skateboard and who had some spray cans and who 
you know, had a drum kit in the garage and your mates would come over and jam every once in a while. All of that was one and the same. And the skateboard was just your way of moving through life and being able to incorporate all those things. And you see that in like an older skateboarding movie like Thrashing, you know, or you see that in Bart Simpson. You know, he's a punk kid who's got a slingshot and a spray can. And you wouldn't really call him a skateboard, even though he uses the skateboard to tie all those things together. Yeah. So it made me look at the different activities and think to myself, well, why is it that the skateboard won out over things that were available at the time, like milk crate scooters and like roller skates and like, you know, maybe not BMX bikes, but at least bikes that you could ride around on the street, you know, like Huffies and stuff like that. They yeah. Weren't, they weren't racing bikes. They were just kind of street cruisers. How come all those things lost and skateboarding won? And I came up with three things that I think are the reasons skateboarding won. I love it. Those three things that made skateboarding the most popular of all of these sports were that it's A, the least complex device, the least complex piece of equipment. B, the terrain was the most accessible. And C, it had the simplest action. So wow. we'll start with the first one, least complex device, right? Bikes are pretty complex, you know. You basically need to be a mechanic these days to keep your brakes and to keep your everything else tuned on the bike. Skateboards, really, really simple by comparison. You know, if you're putting a skateboard together, pretty much the only thing you can get wrong is that the trucks go on the wrong way or the grip tape looks terrible or, you know, you didn't put bearing spacers in so your wheels are pretty slow. Not a whole lot you can get wrong. Maybe if you pick the wrong parts, you get a wheel bite and you fall off. But for the most part, it's pretty simple to to put together and maintain a skateboard so that it can get you from A to B. Um, uh, B, the most accessible terrain. Well, I mean, you can you can ride a skateboard in your driveway. You can ride a skateboard on the sidewalk anywhere you need to go on a daily basis. It's terrain for a skateboard. You know, you couldn't use a surfboard in the same way. You couldn't use a snowboard in the same way. Probably couldn't use a motocross bike in the same way. So all of those things that require certain terrain lose out because you can take the skateboard pretty much anywhere. Um, and C, the simplest action. You know, learning how to ride a bike, you probably take a lot more falls than you do learning how to ride a skateboard. Learning how to rollerblade, you probably take a lot more falls you do learning how to ride a skateboard so the fact that you can walk out your door and put one foot on it and learn how to do it and you know worst comes to worst you just jump off it made it the winner by being the combination of all those three things and if a different activity had been able to combine those three things in a better way than skateboards then that activity would have won out instead but I don't think that would ever happen. Well, rollerblading wanted it to happen. Rollerblading wanted it to happen really bad. I think, I think that this is something that uh, Arlo and Brooke were very well aware of, that they were able to appropriate the culture that skateboarding had been developing for a long time because they had a better device or a better vehicle to be able to do all of those things. And whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I, I, I'm, 
I get the impression that that's what they thought. That they could they could bring the identity of being a skateboarder to to different hardware, to a different a different device, to rollerblades. Because I mean everything you see in the way they were developing the hardware and the the image and the attitude behind Senate and what they were doing, it all points in that direction. Now they, they thought they thought there was a, a you know, a battle that was gonna be fought and that rollerblading was gonna win. And and we all know how that turned out. Well, yeah, but I don't think that they failed despite being able to do a better job of those three uh, um, those three elements. That's true. But so, what is to be said about our our relative ice skating? Now, did you watch that Red Bull, uh, the ice skating skate park thing? I gotta tell you, I don't have any time for it, and the reason—the reason I don't have any time for it is, how can anyone outside of that group of maybe one dozen guys get the opportunity to do that? Right? I want you to imagine. Let's say you live in the middle of Minnesota, right? Yeah. And there's a frozen lake, like a frozen pond, in your town that everyone goes and skates on. Right? Yeah. I want you to ask yourself, how would you go about making an ice jump ramp on that lake? <laughs> There's no way. There's no freaking way. Right? The skiers, the snow skiers have a better chance because they can shovel snow, you know. They can go they can go urban skiing with, you know, a pickup truck and a bunch of shovels and they can make terrain. There's no way you're making freestyle terrain for ice skates. Unless Red Bull's dropping, what, 50 grand to do yeah. one-off event? Don't get me wrong. It's a cool thing to watch, but you know, Red Bull has a habit of doing these things where they drop a fortune on what's basically a promo event, and it's not a promo event for the sports. It's a promo event for the drink. So oh. I don't know that it really helps the sports other than the people who are into it and that want to see that stuff and love watching it, you know? Yeah. Like, you and I can love watching, you know, the Red Bull ice skater freestyle edits, but, like, how, how is anyone going to make that happen in their town? How is anyone going to get to ice skate on something like that if that was their desire? Wasn't it interesting how popular that was, though, and how, how quickly people, there was comments like, if this is a sport in the X Games, I'm going to support it or... Wasn't that funny? Since, since, since the since Richie Eisler's edit blew up on Reddit, um, I, I knew nothing about Reddit at the time. Yeah, I'd heard the name. I kind of got the impression of what it was, but I didn't know how it worked. So once that edit, you know, hit the front page there, I'm like, okay, I need to go and work out what this place is all about, and how it works. And the conclusion I came to is that. People on Reddit have a very, very short attention span and that each post amuses them for, what, 30 seconds or a minute and yeah. then they move on to the next one. You know, so you spend 10 or 15 minutes there and it, it maybe, you know, cheers you up a little bit, but you're not going to get into any of that stuff. You don't really care about that stuff. Yeah. You're talking about the general Reddit, right? You saw Van Damme doing the splits between the reversing trucks, right? Oh, yeah. 
Like, who's going to go watch a Van Damme movie? Who's going to go buy a Volvo truck? Nobody. Yeah, and that that bothers me actually about what I do for a career. And you move on. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it blows up and people leave comments and it kind of looks like everyone cares about, you know, ice skating on, on transitions and jumps. But, I mean, I come back to that point. Like, which ice skater, like, which ice skater who lives in some small town in the U.S. is going to go make himself an ice jump ramp? Yeah. It's not going to happen. Like, I want to go and rollerblade all the stuff that goes down in Red Bull edits too, but I can't make that happen. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm never jumping off a, a skyscraper in Vegas and landing on, you know, the ramp that makes it possible that cost a million dollars and Red Bull put it down. Like, that's never happening for anyone outside of a tiny group of guys that, you know, that, that, that get it done one way or another. Uh to sell soda, to sell energy drinks. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about um, the possibility of uh, re- the crushed ice, like the downhill ice course? Uh-huh. Uh, how, I mean, Seba's starting to do skate cross, and then there was that video of people doing, building like almost like a mountain biking track in the woods and then yeah, wearing yeah. hockey equipment on inlines. It, it feels like... There's something there that is very specifically rollerblading in my mind. That well, definitely is, and I, I love the style of it. Um, you've seen that. You've seen that old street skating section out of Dare to Air, right? I think I must have sent it to you at one point. Yeah, where it's just where, some someone skating full speed, pretty much. Well, it's 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 specifically Edwards, and. He's really looking at the streets, at the skyscrapers and at the, you know, the urban jungle, so to speak. He's looking at it as if it were, as if it were a skiing mountain. You know, I mean, he's doing cliff drops. I mean, he's doing them down escalators and stuff like that, but he's doing them off, you know, second story parking garages. But there isn't a whole lot that you can see on rollerblades these days that doesn't have a really strong skateboarding influence to it. But what he was doing definitely had a really strong, like, skiing influence to it or like urban mountain biking influence to it or something and me coming from bmx i mean i definitely have a very strong attraction to that that idea of being able to rollerblade like on a bmx track you know a pump track or you know a rhythm section yeah i want to do that um so there's a desire there people people do want to skate that way um it's got to cost a fortune to make it happen though if we're sticking with the little urethane wheels and it was it was interesting to see in that uh, that Richie and Dustin edit from like a year ago that I only just found out about, where Powerslide had like the three wheel rubber pneumatic tire frames. Oh yeah, which never actually came out. Well, I mean, if you watch the edit, you can kind of work out why. But um, <laughs> it, it dude, it did not look it looked very painful. You know, well, because that was a length someone issue. Like Dustin, someone like Dustin, who looks like a Zen master on skates. This is Dustin Werbeski. Yeah. Someone like Dustin Werbeski, who looks like a Zen master on skates, you know, most of the time, it really looked uncoordinated on those rubber wheel things. So, I don't know. Maybe they didn't work. Maybe no one wants them to work. I don't know. But yeah, people are people are looking at the possibility, I guess. So. Um, what? Without, without redesigning 
<laughs> Without redesigning the fundamentals of like rollerblade skate design, I don't think it's going to work. I mean, we worked that out with the Coyotes, you know what I mean? We worked that out with the, uh, what were the Rossi's ones called? Uh, Big Cats. Big Cats. Please tell me, please tell me you saw in the late 90s dudes racing down mountain bike trails on Big Cats. Uh, I saw... Dying. Oh my God, dying. I found like a rollerblade coyote promo video on YouTube and it was so bad that I couldn't even post it to our Facebook. Like it was... There there were guys trying to race big cats down like fire roads. (laughs) Down ski runs in summer. The stuff that they had just started opening up to mountain bike riders. (laughs) At Mammoth. (laughs) They would have like a mountain bike downhill race and then they would have like dudes on big cats trying to race down the same thing. It's uh, ruts and rocks and potholes, and these guys are on like what, eighty or ninety millimeter, solid hard rubber wheels, like hockey puck wheels. Oh man, pure pure death. Did you ever see the edit of Leon hitting some jumps? I did, yeah. And he he made them work just a little bit, but only because he can make a lot of different skates work. Yeah, I think from like a striding perspective and speed he just kind of figured out a way to kind of make it work depending on what he was doing the jump on um extracts especially if you can find the ones that are that are popular and that are well represented by like the locals bmx tracks are super super smooth these days really hard packed down and well maintained have like paved berms and paved sections and stuff oh that's right did you watch the uh it was still dirt but it's only just still dirt you know what i mean yeah. Um, Anthony Potier, the the Belgium uh-huh. rider from Seba. Did you watch his his edit where he was on a dirt track? I think so. Yeah, I think I've it, seen a couple of them recently. It was what you were talking about. It was a pretty legit looking track, and he hit like the biggest yeah, tabletops. He, he was flowing through a whole bunch of sections. I remember. Yeah, and um, that's it's that's more of the track i guess he had a good setup too like those skates are pretty decent you can get a lot of speed and he's also a talented park skater so i thought that was really interesting that that was the first thing that kind of seemed like the best version of of a off-road that i had seen yeah um so okay without going into it too much (laughs) now so Jason Leventhal took two. He he took snowboarding and made two snowboards and faced them forward, and that was the beginning of him. You know, kind of free skiing or the idea of free skiing, but he didn't call it free skiing. So, what do you have brewing in your mind now that you're starting to experience skiing, and how has that changed the way that you look at? what could or couldn't be rollerblading anymore? Good question. Um, uh, yeah, everything's backwards now. I mean, even the last podcast I did where it was kind of this revelation for me to realize that I was trying to make a skate handle more like a ski and I didn't know anything about skiing. Well, now it's the exact opposite. I mean, I, 
I'm loving being on skis so much that I don't want to make a skate that handles more like skis. I want to make a ski with wheels. And have people so have kind of tried? Be, it's not. It, it's not going to be a rollerblade. And I think if rollerbladers put them on and tried to use them in ways that they're familiar on rollerblades, I don't know that it would work. Because now I'm more inclined to try and make it be what skiers are comfortable with. Now I'm more inclined to try and make it something that a skier can look at and be like, well, you know, it's summer or, you know, it's a really bad winter and there's no snow anywhere um, and I want to ski and I can't. <laughs> because when, I mean, when you look at, like I was saying about, about the new school of skiing, when you look at the young kids and what they're bringing forward today, they, they don't need a mountain anymore. They don't need, you know, 12 feet of snow anymore. That The young kids don't need that to do what they're doing. And you have had a chance to try those roller skis at uh, at Tahoe, is it? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the ones that Woodward Tahoe has got. Um, just a, a little bit of background for people that don't know. Uh, Woodward Camps... The uh, you know the, the the chain of them or the uh, the family of Woodward Camps was bought by a company called Powder that are owners and uh, you know managers of ski resorts and there's a there's a Powder ski resort in um, in Park City Utah there's one in uh, uh, Copper Colorado I don't know if the town's called Copper but I think it is and. They own uh, Boreal that's uh, on the way into Truckee in Lake Tahoe as well. And they're building these Woodward facilities that are right there on the same property as the, as the ski resorts where you can go in and bounce up and down on trampolines and hit a whole bunch of ramps onto like gym mats and foam pits, all the stuff that we're familiar with at, at Woodward camps. But they're trying to present it less to skateboarders and rollerbladers and more to skiers and snowboarders so at the woodward camp in uh, i'm sorry at the at the woodward tahoe facility up here at boreal they've got these ski things with like a bunch of wheels bolted to them i want to say like like maybe a dozen wheels on each ski and the idea is they were trying to make a ski with wheels on it that would I don't get the impression it works very well, but they've certainly opened that door to wanting to get skiers off the snow and put these things on and practice spins and flips and jumps and rails and all that kind of stuff. I don't know that a whole lot of people are taking these things through like the actual skate parks that they have on the property. I think the majority of people are just using them for like the launches into foam and the rollers and stuff. But yeah, the idea is there. And you you have tried them? I have tried them. <laughs> and I immediately regretted that decision. How hard are they to use? It looks like they're really hard. Um, they just don't work in the same way as a rollerblade. I can't say that they don't work at all. Maybe skiers think they work just fine, but they don't work in the same way as a rollerblade. I thought it was really interesting in that edit that like it was a skier using them and it looked like a massive 
uh, accomplishment that he 360'd up the step up and grinded the rail. Like, it looked crazy for him to do that. But he is someone who would never put on rollerblades. Well, and- it's, to- it's totally different, though, because the way... I- I'll talk about edging for a minute. The way, that is- the way that you control a ski is on the edges. Yeah. So anytime you're standing a ski straight up and down, the thing can just swivel, and there's no... There's no resistance at all, right? So yeah. if you stand a ski straight up and down and you try and do a 360, you're going to move like 60 or 70 degrees in one direction and the skis are going to move 60 or 70 degrees in the other direction and you're not going to generate any torque or any rotation at all. Yeah. So anytime you come off a jump on a pair of skis, you come off on the edges and you develop that torque, that, that twisting motion, that rotation off the edges. Well, rollerblading is entirely different. When you stand a rollerblade straight up and down, you've got all the grip and all the edge in the world, and you only run out of that edge as you start leaning them over to, what, 30 degrees, 45 degrees? Yeah. So it's totally different. You can stand straight up and down and do, like, pencil 720s <laughs> on rollerblades. If you tried to stand straight up and do a pencil 720 on skis, you just wouldn't go anywhere. You wouldn't even start spinning. So it really is an accomplishment because... That was my, my impression of riding these ski things is it feels like riding a ski that doesn't have any edges. Wow. And if you're a skier who hits a whole lot of rails, you're probably pretty used to that. I mean, these guys that do slope style, you know, they're pretty much going in a straight line the whole way down. They're never really carving on the limit of what their edges can do. Every time you hit rails and hit you know, grinds on skis, you're kind of messing your edges up anyway. They're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to rail corners anymore anyway because you've been bashing your edges into, into you know metal rails and metal boxes all, all that. Yeah. But yeah, that was that was the feel that I got of them. Is if you pointed these roller ski things in a straight line, they would kind of feel like skis and they would work fine, but you couldn't really edge on them at all, or at least not very much. I don't even understand how it would be possible to bring that feel to the pavement. But if it if if you could, that would be insane. Like a you've seen freeboards, right? Yep. I mean, that guy put a lot of work in, and he worked out how to get it done. That you get that kind of sideways carve in a freeboard, right? You got that sideways speed control feel in a freeboard. I mean, it's a, the freeboards basically got standard skateboard trucks front and back but then mounted on the center line of the board there's a like a wheel on a swivel one at the front one at the back and it sits down lower than the level of the wheels on the sides so if you stand the freeboard straight up and down only those swivel wheels are touching and you can just spin it any which way you want but the moment you lean it one way or the other, you put those outer wheels down and they act as the edges. So freeboard feels like a snowboard or surfing? Yeah, freeboard's supposed to feel like a snowboard. And, I mean, they came pretty close. I don't know that anyone's going to design something that comes closer. And they've and- been trying to design things for a while, you know, like those voodoo balance boards and then, like, snake boards and... All sorts of crazy things. Oh, it's, it's like snowboarding on the street. Well, I, I think the freeboard guy got closer than anyone's going to get for a while. 
And in terms of like a an a niche activity, how niche is freeboarding? Uh, well, this is one of the things that I'm dealing with as well. Is it's niche because of the fact that when you fall, you fall on pavement, and people who are uh, familiar with snowboarding at a certain level can't go out and freeboard at the same level because they're gonna, you know, rip themselves to pieces. I mean, you basically need to wear like motorcycle leathers to to want to go out and do the same things on a freeboard that you can do on a snowboard and stay alive. <laughs> Secondly, you're not on private property. You see, this is part of the beauty of going to like a like a ski resort. Yeah, it's expensive and you pay the money, but you're on private property or you're on property where you have a right to be there. So you don't have to worry about getting run over by cars or pulled up by police, etc., etc., etc. So the people that end up freeboarding are people that are willing to, you know, break the laws in all the same ways that we as rollerbladers do. And yet there's still people with a strong enough connection to snowboarding that they want to go out and do basically the same thing down, you know, down big hills on the street in the summer in good weather. And I think that makes it a pretty niche activity. There's a small group of people that are willing to do both. Kind of the same as the number of rollerbladers that ski, you know. The, uh, the cultures and the social classes are at, are at opposite ends of the spectrum. So it's kind of hard for you to be in, in both. That one's changing a little bit, but on a very small level. You mean the social classes in, in skiing? Uh, no, just that um, there are rollerbladers who maybe have like a career now and a little bit more money. And at least in Canada, there's more rollerbladers that ski now. There, there should be. Yeah. Look at where you guys are. <laughs> I know. I'm looking at you, Joey. No excuses. <laughs> I know. Well, no yeah. Uh, well, my only excuse right now is just that I got camera gear. Yeah, in terms box on Craigslist, mate, sixty dollars. Yeah, I know. Steal a shovel from somewhere and you're good. <laughs> Plus, I have to, I have to uh, make a sled dogs edit before I. That 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 JP edit where he's uh, skiing the lines down the hill. Yeah. I, whenever I watch that, I imagine that it's you doing the skiing. It's not him. It's you. The JP. Yeah. <laughs> oh man you could be that dude <laughs> so, uh, what's his name my camera gear Max Hill is the one is the closest I've seen um, to to what I imagine uh, I would want to do on skis um, uh, and I'm not sure how far I can emulate the, the you know, the little rubber people uh, on skis because, I mean, I'm not young anymore, you know, so that's one thing that's been a big wake-up call since I started skiing was this idea of getting bindings that work and getting that sorted out before your skis break your legs. That's weird to think that that's actually a thing, so... If we you get worried about it, 
in, in blading, we don't have to worry about it at all. It's no, so- but in skiing, that's insane that, that if you get the wrong bindings and you're going off a jump or skiing park, that your knee can rip out. It's, it's so easy to lose your balance in rollerblading that you're not going to hurt yourself in the same way. You're going to hurt something else. Like, um, like the, the drip drop gap that Haffy tried, right? Yeah. You don't have to worry about like tearing ACLs because you can't put the same kind of force onto a set of skates that you can onto a set of skis and maintain your balance because the wheelbase is so short. You're going you're gonna to put down like 60 or 70% of your maximum force and then lose your balance. Yeah. Whereas the skiers, because they've got that extra balance, they can just keep, they can just keep, you know, pushing it, just keep giving it everything they've got and all your weight's gone onto the tails of your skis and maybe you're a little bit off balance or maybe, you know, you hit a rut in the snow at the same time or something and... Yeah, some of these guys are really doing some damage to their knees, really doing some damage to their legs. So it's one thing that I'm thinking a lot about is this idea of, well, I want to try and find some bindings that are going to let me go before that happens. And is there, or is this something that they haven't really perfected yet? Well, it it seems like there's an attitude in skiing where, like, the the higher your tension on your bindings, the higher the number of how tense your bindings are to hold you in, the more hardcore you are, you know, or the, the better a skier you are. That's so funny. It, it might be true depending on the tricks you're doing. I don't really know yet, but I definitely want to start at the other end. I would rather come out of the bindings like 10 times a day and just, you know, do like a Superman chest slide down the hill than not come out the one time where it's going to, it's going to, you know, tear your ACL or it's going to break your leg or something like that. Yeah, I want to say when I tried skiing the last time, I remember how dangerous it felt compared to rollerblading that like I was locked into this really stiff boot and what I was used to in terms of like my my ankle being able to move and things like that. Yeah. It just could have been the weirdest catch like if I was being cocky with going backwards really fast and I go to swivel to forwards like I do on skates. And one yep. ski goes one way and one ski goes the other way. Just on like the dumbest little bunny hill, I could yep. blow my knee out. It, it's amazing the, the percentage of those injuries that happen at really slow speed. Now, admittedly, that's happening for like beginner skiers. But the expert guys, like the expert free skier guys, it's more happening because of a lot of the jumps and the flips and the spins they're doing. They're coming down on weird angles they're coming down on skis that are a lot flexier than they used to be. So they're able to flex the skis into certain positions and certain angles that maybe wasn't true 10 or 15 years ago. It wasn't possible. Yeah. And it's loading up the bindings in ways that some of them aren't really designed for. So if you've got the wrong bindings, you know, you can be in a position where you really, really need your ski to release or it's going to break you. And it doesn't release, and it breaks you. And who was the guy who was supposed to make it to the Olympics? Wait, I should know this. Uh, there were a Tom, couple of Tom Wallish and um, Kaya's knee was blown out. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure exactly how she did hers, but yeah, uh, Simon Demont was pretty keen on to make the Olympics. So 
and there's a bunch of other guys. I mean, it's not it's not an uncommon thing for guys skiing at that level to tear ACLs. And it's weird. It, it, it it's not that they're not talented. It's just that the there hasn't been that that piece of equipment that makes it they, safer. I mean, they can't be perfect because the the terrain itself is not perfect. Yeah. Like this this is another thing that you face when you're trying to ski like a terrain park is that. If you have a local skate park, especially if it's made out of like cement, it is the same every day. The only way it's going to change is you might need to wax things once in a while if it's rained or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Park's the same every day. Um, terrain park is different every day. And it's sometimes even different from one run to the next. You know, if it's getting a little soft, if it's getting a little slushy, it's going to slow down a lot. Or, you know, if someone. If someone came down the, you know, came down the, the terrain park between your last run, and you know, did like a, you know, messed up the lip or something like that, or took a big chunk out of the out of the, the the in run, you have to deal with that. But you don't know you have to deal with that because you can't go around in circles like in a skate park. There's only one way down the terrain park. There's only one way down the hill. Every time you do it, it can be different from what it was last time. And the level that guys are skiing at is, in a way, it's insane given the fact that the potential danger of what they're doing is so much higher because they can't control the surface and they can't control the terrain the same way that you can in rollerblading. You know the ramp's going to be good from one run to the next. You know the park's going to feel the same from one run to the next. And you know, in skiing, it's not always that way. So I'll have to send you this photo. I actually was looking at, like, the video. Super slow-mo and pause the video at the point where you're looking at his foot, you're looking at the boot, you're looking at the, the binding in the ski, and you're like, oh, my God, why is this still attached? Oh, why say that again. You cut out who was it? Like, it cut out just briefly on when you said who it was. Tom, Tom Wallish. Oh, so it was when he was landing and he was blowing his knee out? like yeah, a... he had a time and you've got like a, a video of the whole thing. Wow. And then there's that clip of, I don't know who here, I don't know who listening was watching the Olympics, but when the, when the women slope style event was on, there was a, there was a, an Asian uh, woman that came up pretty short on the last big jump. Yeah. And just knuckled like you've never seen going backwards totally lost it and one of the skis i think came off but the other one stayed on and you're watching this woman ragdoll down the landing it looked like her leg did like two or three like full rotations oh oh (laughs) you're like why is this ski not coming off like why why are you still attached don't get me wrong i understand that this is like a random activity we're talking about and these people don't have like a red button in their hand where they can make the skis just jump off so you've got to, you've got to look at the design of the skis and of the bindings and of what people are doing on them these days and ask like can we make them better um to, to tell you the truth i think there are some companies that are making them better but they're obviously not the companies that are paying the most as far as sponsorship is concerned Ah. 
some of these guys that are writing themselves off, they're sponsored by like mining companies that just aren't keeping up, you know. But maybe the money's better, or maybe they're f- encouraged or forced to be sponsored by those bindings because they're made by the the same companies that make the skis. Hey, it sounds like so a- thing about ground control and Kaiser, you know. Yeah. I mean, maybe they're obligated to ride those bindings because they ride for K2 or they ride for Solomon. I mean, they don't, they don't really have a choice. Sounds about right. Um, in the Jason Leventhal interview, he, there was something about that he tried to make a binding. Yeah, Line, Line made a binding. I think it was in conjunction with like the dude that designed it, kind of like physics and uh, whatever that guy's name was, Keith Longino or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. So a guy had designed this binding that was basically designed around the concept of skiing backwards and of releasing in every which way you could imagine in order to try and prevent these knee injuries, given that the the crazy kids are now skiing backwards and they're coming down from jumps upside down and they're landing tails first and they're landing all over the place. And um, and a great thing that Jason did at the same time was, was trying to develop like a universal mount for bindings because that was that was something that had been done way back in ski boarding you know you had your kind of four hole pattern binding where the holes were a set distance apart and you can put pretty much any non-release ski board binding on any ski board you want and it works great um and now you can you can use like these adapter plate dealies to put non-release bindings into that same hole pattern and Jason and Line had gone out and made a revolutionary binding that went straight into those holes. And even though the bindings, I think, didn't really succeed, partly because they were trying to change an existing industry, partly because there were plastic parts that didn't hold up very well, and partly because people didn't really understand what the benefit was, the bindings didn't succeed very well, but he kept making the Line skis with that four-hole standard mount for a really long time to give people the option of you can run those bindings on these skis if you want. You can run, you know, the adapter plates on these skis if you want. I don't quite understand why bindings and mountings still work the way they do. It's, it's pretty archaic compared to the technology that's going into skis and bindings these days. Is that you still basically just screw them in and when you're done, like screw them in with wood screws <laughs> and when you're done, take out the wood screws and if you want to switch bindings or switch skis, you have to go through all this rigmarole all over again. It has to be that someone owns something. And, is and like- you have to pay a shop to do it. Well, you don't have to pay a shop to do it, but people pay shops to do it. And the shop wants you to sign a contract so they're not held liable if you break your knee in there in you know, the bindings they mounted on your skis. But if you don't take it to the right shop, they do it wrong. They don't do it the way you wanted them to do it. And if they do it wrong, they have to drill a whole new set of holes in your ski until it looks like Swiss cheese and, you know, it wants to break right across that line. <laughs> all, all sorts of drama around around mounting bindings on skis that these rollerbladers don't have to deal with because you just undo two bolts and you're good. You know? Yep, which is pretty damn good. Although, although I think UFS could be refined... I don't deny the concept itself. Being able to bolt any frame onto any boot in, you know, 30 seconds is magic. It is magic, but my favorite skates to this day have all been non-UFS. Um, I'm, 
I'm kind of still there. I've been trying for a long time to get a UFS setup that I like better than like old school K2s. I've been trying for a really long time. I have a pair of those that I'm going to have to try, but it was... Uh... Those CRS frames. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you're going you're gonna to get a pair of those if they ever come out? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, uh, I donated with the Kickstarter, so I'm, I'm looking forward to them if they get done, yeah. Very excellent. Um, yeah, the, the Seba, the FRA that we use, um, it has like metal plates that two big bolts mount into and there's different mounting options. And uh, it makes a big difference that it's just a machine piece of aluminum touching large like aluminum plates with big bolts that aren't UFS. It really changes the way the skate feels. Um, yeah, I, I, had, I had a friend of mine, Jesse, say the same thing to me a long time ago. This was back when I was doing metric and he was talking to me about you know refining UFS. And he was saying he didn't like the fact that it was just two bolts on the center line because the way that he skated, he was able to flex the frame every which way on the boot. And he hated it. Yeah, lots of frames broke. That's the reason um, the and UFS rams had to change. He's stuck with Fifth Elements forever. He's probably even still on them now. <laughs> He's probably still skating like a pair of like 12-year-old Fifth Elements. Um, just because the way that the frame mounts to the boot, there's like zero flex. And uh, to go back to the f the earlier what we were saying, the beauty of something like Adapt is if they wanted to, they could make a sole frame. Um, they could make a, a non-UFS option, like a K2, if a they want. Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't. I mean, there would be no reason for them to, but they could. And take it from someone who was trying to put all sorts of frames on all sorts of boots. It's a lot of work. <laughs> We've, we've got it real good today with two bolts. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to try it. So what, it, it's just the the ride height of the K2 sole frame and the way it all works together is just still so good for you. Yeah, um, I, I think one principle that K2 lost and one principle that I think a lot of skate companies lost was trying to get everything closer to your foot. You want to try and get the grinding surfaces and the rolling surfaces as close to your foot as possible. Yeah. And the further you move the pavement away and the rail away from your foot, the less control you have and the less good it feels. So that was one thing that the K2s had down pat. When you're sole grinding, that rail is really close to your foot. And when you're you know, doing royales, doing uh, um, backslides and whatever, that rail is really close to your foot. And yeah. People, people who skate, even today, if you put someone in a pair of old school K2s and they're doing those kind of tricks, you know, soles and, and royales and stuff, they'll tell you the same thing. These feel so much better than my razors or my USDs or my whatevers because they've, they've moved that rail away from your foot. There's way too much padding. There's way too much plastic. There's too much distance there. And... Um it would even be hard to last time I tried the just the UFS K2 fatty um, it was really hard to royale in them because my habits had got so bad yeah well I've got to say I'm not suggesting that everyone go back to the way it was because I do think a lot of development has gone into making a skate that'll grind predictably in a bunch of different ways and in a bunch of different variations 
and the vocabulary variations that skaters have today just wouldn't be possible in an old school K2. No, no way. It was even hard to like... The principle of keeping it closer to your foot. I mean, um, you know, if you have like shadows with power blade frames on, when you do a Royale or a Torque, that rails a long way away from where your foot is. Yeah. So, but it it makes it possible. Yeah. You can do do, uh, Royales, you can do Torques, you can do all these things in a number of different ways. You don't need the... You don't need a grippy rail one way and a slippery rail the other, that kind of thing. You know, it it, it made all of that possible the way the skates have been developed. So. Yeah, um, the the ice skating relation I've been thinking about a lot lately. That rollerblading is such a strange hybrid. Still, <laughs> it really is, man. <laughs> it, it really is, and. You know, I, I mean, I've spent I've spent a lot of years now trying to seek out problems and find the shortcomings in rollerblading hardware, and you keep coming up against the same thing. Is like, I know I've said this before, but we're basically riding ice skates on stuff that will never be made out of ice. You know, like if you look at watch any video and imagine if that thing was covered in ice and someone was trying to do it on a pair of ice skates would just be pure death that's why i i thought it interesting to ask you about you know the red bull thing because there were comments about how awkward some of it looked yeah well you know i mean even watching nhl looks awkward when 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 you're when you're watching an nhl game live don't get me wrong those guys have incredible talent and incredible ability and yet their feet it's like it's like a crazy chicken dance to make it work, you know, to put to put their body and to put their stick in the right place, their feet are going like berserker. Yeah, there isn't there isn't a whole lot of flow in the way that the skates are actually working on the ice. But to try and change the design of the blades of the ice skates, they're just not going to slide anymore. They're not going to work. It's funny watching the way ice skating works compared to the way like like a uh, giant slalom works on skis. You know, I've been learning a lot about skiing and um, the race courses that the, that the giant slalom skiers are on are basically ice. They're, they're not on snow. They are on hard ice. There's no give to it at all, right? And they're using the edges on their skis in the same way that an ice skater uses their edges. And yet the design and the layout of those edges is entirely different because it needs to be for them to try and do that speed. There's no way you could make an ice skate that would perform the same way as a giant slalom ski and get an ice skater down that hill at the same speed. There's just no way. It's funny because the the last couple times I put on ice skates, um, I was expecting it to be some great revelation how they feel better than rollerblades or something like that. They're sketchy as hell. And the the Aldo like him describing the feel of the first carbon skates as twitchy is just kind of like that fits so much of of what ice skates feel like and what hockey skating style is like and what carbon skates can feel like. It's not it's just not a smooth uh <laughs> it's not a it's not a smooth experience unless you're going yeah, on a not gonna move 
like when you look at when you look at like the racer ice blades, you know, like the dudes that are racing around the oval track. Yeah. In the Olympics. When you look at their blades, it's a whole different kettle of fish. It's a whole new world compared to like the ice skates that you can rent down at the the local rink. Yeah. Um. And it works for them because of the technique that they're using, but it doesn't. I mean, you can't put a pair of their skates on and just go and like tool around at the local ice skating rink. It doesn't work. Yeah. So in order for the ice skate to work the way that it does, the blade needs to be rockered and it needs to be cut and it needs to be positioned in the way that it is. And doing it any other way, you're just not going to get the kind of speed or the kind of maneuverability that you have on a typical ice skate. But they're so limited in how the design can be changed because the way that blade interacts with the ice, it's just not going to move anymore. It's not going to, it's not going to work. Okay, now this is going to sound ridiculous to lots of people, and possibly even you, but I'm sure this is something you think about. Um, as, as opposed to the last two hours of the podcast, <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous. Someone like, when I watch that ski edit of Phil Casabon, if that's how you say his name, and I think of Dustin Latimer in Brain Fear Gone. Now, they're doing exactly the same thing, but there may be rollerbladers, when we look back 10 or 20 years, like we're, we might look back on rollerblading and we may have been all using the wrong technology for like a really long period of time. That, that rollerblades were just one... Are you clapping? Thank you. Um, that rollerblade. I'm trying to hear someone other than me say that. <laughs> I, and it, and I mean, I set it up by saying it sounds ridiculous, but I've thought about this a lot. I've also thought about the way that rollerblading appears to the naked eye of someone who doesn't know how it feels to do it. It it looks like it might be the wrong technology, even for someone like Dustin Latimer, of what he wanted to do and what a lot of us want to do. That it's yeah. not. We may have been using the wrong thing. We may still be using the wrong thing. But there's nothing better yet. But I just have that feeling when we look back, we might be like, "Holy shit! They were doing all that on those things." Anyways, that's what I wanted I to say. Agree more with Dustin. Um, you know, Dustin played a big role in designing the hardware that he used throughout his, you know, skating career, and. I'm not sure that it, that it got him as much credit as it should have. Like the UFS throne, that's all Dustin. The shadow skate, that is all Dustin. Everything you see in the way that skate was designed to work better for, for grinding and for assess sliding and the techniques and stuff like that, that was all him, right? Maybe Shane had the bright idea of putting a snowboard binding on a roll blade frame, but, but what makes the shadow work the way that it works for skaters, that, that was all Dustin. Yeah, and I think that he went a really long way, not only in pushing the hardware innovation forward, but in being the guy that actually showed people what was possible now that the hardware had moved forward. You know, the UFS throne was probably the first skate that was like squared off on the sole. You know, squared off at the back. So it's funny. I'm going to bring Rodney Mullen into this one again in the same way that Rodney Mullen pretty much revolutionized the way that street skateboard was to be shaped. You know, the nose, the tail, the radius, 
the angles, all that kind of stuff. You know, Dustin was doing the same thing with the grinding surfaces of the skate. I'm yeah. more concerned with like the rolling performance and the rolling ability because oh, what uh, what section was it? It was in one of the words sections. There's a line that Dustin does where he's in an underground parking lot. He does a couple of weird wall ride tappy things, and then he does like a like a back royale and two seventies off. But it's a weird back royale because it's uphill. Yeah. Do you remember that line? Yeah, of course. Is it like the underground parking garage? Okay. Everyone who's listening, go and watch that line because uh, my friend Frank uses it as the perfect example of this is why Annie Rocker needs to die a horrible death. Right? The, way, the way that he's using the skates to grind through that whole section is magic. Grind, cess slides, it's incredible. Doing stuff you, you had never seen before at that point. And then to watch him try and maneuver through this parking lot, stringing three tricks together in a line, you can't help but look at the hardware and be like, gee, something's wrong with that guy's skates. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a wheel fell off them or something, and he's still skating, and he doesn't know it. Something's wrong with that guy's skates. So, um, yeah. And I'm not hating on Andy Rocker. I honestly believe that of all the of all the possible setups and possible solutions that we have right now for people to roll blade the way they want to do it, any rocker is the best option. Yeah, I do honestly believe that. I'm not a flat Nazi. I like flat myself. I'm sticking with it myself, but I totally get why any rocker is the way to go. If you're a skater and you take it seriously, I get it. I still think there's so much potential for better solutions, though, better ways of. of Solving the problem of how do we make a skate that rolls good and grinds good at the same time. Which, which is that that could be a completely different skate. Uh, yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be. Like no. we're saying about the Celtic, like we're saying about the Celtic frames, they're pretty close. Yeah, they are. And I think they have shown people that. It's not only possible, but that it does work better. I mean, you know, Kaiser did a pretty Kaiser did a pretty lame job of trying to rip them off. You know, the slimline still doesn't look anything like the uh, the Celtic frame. And anyone who thinks they can buy the slimlines and they'll work almost as good as the Celtic frames is kidding themselves. Uh, it'll be exciting to see what what Adapt does, but uh, yeah, I can't say there's a whole lot of market for it at the moment. You know. Like, even, even Celtic, unfortunately, I don't think they're going to sell a million, you know? No. No. It's cool that I think that frame is made in Ireland. Nice. I mean, it works, man. The, you look at the profile and the lines on the frame and the way that it's been designed. They nailed it. It really works. It was, uh, it was an update of the MOOC in the best way possible, in my opinion. No frame's going to be perfect for everyone. No. They did a really good job of making the ideal flat frame. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. Yeah. This, I, is, this is for me, who spent a long time trying to do it myself, and, you know, I, I can look at their design and be like, wow, these guys really nailed it. Yep. And especially, the, especially when I could put 62s on there and still go out and, you know, grind like I used to. <laughs> the, uh... The one thing I remember for me, it was like, oh, I can't stair ride in them. And then I started to think, well, I could kind of stair ride in them, 
but not how I was comfortable. And then I was thinking about, well, when I'm using that setup, I don't really need to stair ride. It's not... What's that? You just need to man up and do it. <laughs> I did. I, I laced a couple. It was I think it was not so much forward stair ride as it was fakie. The technique that I did, my right foot would hook on the H block. But, I mean, I could wear it down anyway. So I'm old school enough. I probably split my feet a bit more than everyone else when I'm doing stair rides. But, I mean, I remember doing some at parks in the Celtic frames with 62s. You know, when you're at a park and there's like a, like a five set or a six set or something. Yeah. I didn't have any problem with that. I found that I needed to lean forward more on the front of my feet. But we'll see. Because um, I am going to do a stair ride tutorial now that the weather's nice. I'm not sure if I want to do it in aggressives or or in a bigger wheel setup. I'm not sure yet uh, if that would make any difference in terms of like accessibility of explaining it. I don't know, but we'll see. Um, so we're, we're pretty much at the two hour mark. Is there anything that we missed that you want to end on? Pretty much covered everything that I had in mind. Uh, this was a really good podcast, and I think if people are open-minded to it, it's really fucking interesting. Just the parallels between skiing and rollerblading and someone who doesn't know a lot about skiing, um, just your experience with it is interesting. Yeah. It's, it's definitely going to sound like a bunch of, you know, old, fat, white, irrelevant dudes talking to the younger guys, and that's okay, but I think your audience is pretty mature anyway. Um, and even the younger guys you have listening are pretty mature. So that's, uh, that's a good sign, you know? It's a good, it's a good sign that rollerblading has a changing of the guard, you know, right around the corner. Well, yeah, according to the powwow, uh, we have no listeners under the age of 18 right now. <laughs> Because they got better things to do, man. They're skaters. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Jacob. This was awesome. And uh, I think if people want to use their uh, 3G or whatever, I don't know if they have Wi-Fi at Kona, people might actually be listening to this on the way home from uh, the uh, the whole skate weekend. So that's exciting, too. Well, um, I'll send you that photo I was talking about. And you can try and, like... Uh post it with the podcast or something like that does that work yeah i think we can post photos in the comments i'll have to ask todd um All right. if not we'll do the facebook post or both we'll see um Sweet. perfect so right, thank you and have a good I'm night excited. get yeah. some skis uh, yeah i know i will i will <laughs> <laughs> okay later see you mate